I'm Dr. Tanya Raquel. Welcome to Whiteness Interrupted. I believe we have to collectively disrupt and interrupt our whiteness and that it will have consequences. We must choose to have resolved that it is absolutely worth it. We don't have time to wait another day. So let's begin now. Hi, Brave Souls. I am Dr. Tanya Raquel and your host on Whiteness Interrupted. I am really excited for our guest today, who I have met one time in person. I believe it was in 2016. Uh, But she has been someone who former students of mine have always named as an interrupter of whiteness and spaces of teaching and education. So Teresa Christensen Caballero is our guest today, and she is currently the Director of Graduate Student Professional and Career Development, uh, and is also um, the Director of the Pipeline to an Inclusive Faculty Program Coordinator in the Graduate College at the University of Illinois Chicago. Uh, She is a dynamic, creative, and collaborative educator and administrator with 16 plus years of experience in higher ed. Teresa, welcome to the podcast. Tanya, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. (laughs) Great. So I I was thinking about it, you know, when I had invited you to the podcast, I met you, I think I had just started at UIC, and I don't know if you recall this. Um, and I had just started, there was one meeting um, for the director of the graduate school at UIC. And then as I was teaching a graduate college class, the foundations of college teaching, uh, we would talk about ways that we could be more inclusive and equitable in teaching and the hierarchy and norms of, uh, let's just be real, heteropatriarchy, mm-hmm. uh, race, et cetera, in education. And so many of the graduate students uh, alluded to your support. So uh, I, I heard your name so many times over the years. Oh, well, thank you so much. I heard yours too. They were like, this is the most amazing teaching course I've ever had. And so it, it, it went both ways. <laughs> so <thank laughs> Very good. So we're excited to have you on. And I'd like to start by you sharing with us your journey um, mm-hmm. and what has paved the way for you to be the educator and person you are today. Mm, that's a That's a long story, but I'll try to keep it short. (laughs) Um, So I'm from California. I'm a biracial Chicana uh, from California. Um, And I grew up with a a brown mom and a white dad and, you know, biracial um, and and really, you know, more fair-skinned, light eyes uh, and uh, experienced privilege in that way. But Um, growing up with my mother and seeing all of the experiences that we had, you know, she would go into the classroom and they would think she was my nanny or someone taking care of me and not my mom. Uh, Seeing the way that people treated her, she didn't want to talk to them when we were outside of the grocery store and and them saying, do you speak any English? And, you know, my mom has a master's degree. (laughs) So, you know, she's like, no, I just don't want to talk to you. Um, And so seeing that kind of uh, experience growing up, uh, growing up, you know, struggling and, and my parents went up when I was 12, but living on a teacher's salary, you know, an educator's uh, salary, um, I'm one of four children. Um, and so I think just that that growing up um, and my mom guiding uh, my, my journey of thinking about, you know, equity, justice, um, going to camps when I was like in high school about kind of understanding like race, class, gender, 
sensitivities and trying to share that. I remember just feeling so alone trying to share that even in high school and people not understanding, like I was still trying to understand what these structures look like, but I understood and saw, you know, issues with like equity and problems with education um, and resources that I went to public school from the time I was in kindergarten through I mean, I now work at a public university, so I never left, you know, public education and and um, even working at a summer camp where I saw, you know, all the kids in, and I grew up in Pasadena, California. Mm-hmm. Um, this, I went, to, you know, I worked at this wealthy summer camp and I saw the stories of these children and the, and their, you know, their, the, I was with, you know, fellow camp counselors and like their homes and like what they looked like. And I was like, wow, this is very different than the stories of like my my growing up and my friends. And so I think as you just grow up, you start to see the, all of these inequities and issues and racism and classism, sexism, homophobia, all of this stuff, right? But it's like having the language to learn how to talk about it. Um, and so when I went to college, I wanted to change the world and I wanted to be a political science major. Um, and then I took two classes at University of California, Santa Barbara, taught by white men about white men, basically like, you know, <laughs> and I said, this doesn't jive with me. You know, I want to change things, but this isn't the way I want to do it. And I actually had a, an amazing TA for an American history course that really was real about, you know, what was going on. And I was like, maybe it's history. So in college, I took like history, Chicano studies, gender women studies. And I had some professors that just really kind of changed my outlook on on the world and thinking about, you know, foreign policy and the stuff that we've done and issues happening in the United States and understanding kind of like, especially like Chicano Latino history and how it's not in the history books. And so then I decided, oh, I don't want to like change everything. I just want to change the, you know, the history and the way things are represented. So, um, sorry, this is, I said it was to be short, but this is long. Yeah, no. <laughs> you know, I so, um, I was, you know, I needed to, after college, I was like, okay, I want to be a history professor. I had two professors, you know, maybe we'll talk about that later that really, you know, impacted my journey in college along with activism, along with, you know, these relationships I was building in college, I realized, no, I need to do something, you know, like there is, there, there is still this like inequity, but now I have the language to talk about and I want to learn more and I want to be a professor. Like I want to do what my professors did for me. So I left California to come to University of Illinois at Chicago. And I, you know, I was very lucky to have a fellowship. I I was, you know, accepted at at Texas at Austin and at Chicago, but Texas at Austin said, well, I don't know, we have to figure out your funding. And Chicago said, oh, well, you know, here's some money. So I said, of course, (laughs) as a student who can't pay, I couldn't pay for graduate school. I paid for my undergrad education and was still paying it. I was like, I need to go where the money is. And they had developed this new program supposedly under, you know, the direction of this famous kind of history professor and and labor history professor. But then I went and um, it was a little different than I thought it was going to be. The kind of welcoming, inclusive environment of Chicano studies and the other, you know, professors that I had in undergrad, I thought it was going to be the same when I went to graduate school. and, And it wasn't that, you know, there was very few BIPOC folks or biracial or anything, right? Folks in the department, it was very, uh, <laughs> it was very white. Uh, it was very male. I was a Chicana from the Southwest that kind of kind of got pigeonholed into, uh, I got called my friend's name. There was two Latinas in the department and I was one of them and I got called her name all the time. You know, she's now a professor at Harold Washington College and we laugh about that all the time. We look nothing alike, you know? <laughs> 
really not alike other than the fact that maybe we wear glasses. And so I had some, there were some amazing, you know, I was lucky that I got to uh, work in the department of Latin American Latino studies. There was a professor, Francis Aparicio, who was one of the few professors that just made me feel encouraged and like I could do it. Um, and of course she was a Latina, right? Um, and she ended up leaving to Northwestern. And once she did, I was like really sad. And I was like, oh, like, I don't know. So I struggled through graduate school for a very long time, but I was lucky to work on committees. I worked for the Chancellor's Committee on the Status of Latinos. I worked on some other, you know, side jobs committees. I was lucky to be a graduate assistant for the graduate college that I realized that the work didn't necessarily have to be done in the classroom, even though I love teaching and I loved history and I love Latino studies, I also realized that, um, you know, all the work that could be done could be done as an administrator and like supporting students. And so I had a really rough time in graduate school. Um, I felt like there were specific experiences of myself and my other colleagues of color in graduate school that were really difficult and hard. And I didn't feel like maybe some departments had people that, that folks could go to, but I didn't, uh, other than, you know, the one professor that I had mentioned. And so um, I decided that once I was given the opportunity with the Graduate College at University of Illinois at Chicago, that I wanted to be that person for other students. And, and I was like really sad and I was, I finished my exams and I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I don't know if I can hold out for these next two, three years and finishing. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, it's time for a shift. I'm not happy. Um, and so then I shifted to, to working with, uh, with graduate students um, and informally kind of advising, I guess, graduate students of color and then became more formally, you know, the head of the Pipeline to Inclusive Faculty Program, which we try to, um, you know, encourage graduate students who want to become faculty and really increase the number of BIPOC folks into the pipeline uh, for faculty positions. Not that that's the only thing that people can do. And we <laughs> but we need both, right? Like we need folks out there doing other types of work, but also in faculty positions. So it's just the long, you know, history in higher ed, you know, from, I mean, heck, from high school to undergrad and working with students in residential life to then and being an administrator later on, working on committees and, and all of this stuff just kind of led to luckily being in the position that I'm in, um, always having my door open for students. Um, so many tears have been shed in my, in my office. Um, but I think just creating that opening, welcoming space for students allows them to be fully, genuinely themselves. They don't have to perform. Um, a lot of students of color feel like they, and you know, all sorts of students, international students, poor students feel like they have to perform in these spaces, in these higher education spaces, because if not, they're going to be questioned on their knowledge, where they're from, whether, whether they're valid at even being there. And those are the things that I felt, you know, when I came um, and was so scared, you know, coming into my first year of graduate school. So I think it's just knowing like the struggle that I had in graduate school um, and wanting that to be better for the students that, you know, I talked to and connecting them to resources that I wish I knew about, or they weren't even there. I mean, honestly, you know, they weren't there at the time that I was um, incoming as like a graduate student. So I guess that's a long story, but I think it's, I think it's important to create those spaces for students and in my teaching and I teach Latino studies and my, in my administration work in the graduate college, I, those are the things that I feel is most important community and space for students to be authentically who they are and to allow them to kind of grow and in, into um, whatever they want to do um, is important. So that was long, but yes. <laughs> wow. I have so many thoughts and I'll just pick off of what you just recently said that 
the showing up authentically who they are and not having to perform. Um, and if they're not performing, then questioning or feeling that maybe faculty or others will question their, it's like their, their humanity or their worthiness of being there. Mm. Um, I think that when I think about um, my experience as a student and then um, most recently as a faculty member, uh, this idea uh, that we can't compartmentalize and we shouldn't compartmentalize, right? And that every student should be able to show up as their, their full self. Um, and so I'm thinking about the ways that uh, we perform in academia and how it's harmful. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's especially important when people are like, well, you know, I work for a, the only research one public institution in the city of Chicago, right? And often people confuse it for University of Chicago, which is a wonderful institution, but we know it's a very different, the type of students that go there are very different, the faculty, everything is very different, right? And these mm-hmm. private institutions that have a lot more resources. But I tell my students when I go into the classroom, I'm like, you know, if you all, a lot of you are holding down one or two jobs, helping your families. Um, it's oftentimes, you know, advising younger siblings on this kind of journey through education. Meanwhile, you know, trying to get 4.0s, trying to like apply to graduate school, like all of this stuff, you know, I'm thinking like the undergrads and then the graduate students, like a whole nother level. It's like, are you kidding me? In the game of life, you are going to be the ones who are going to be the most successful because you are already dealing with all of this stuff like stacked against you. Not to mention that you're going to go into any institution and you're going to experience racism. You're going to experience sexism. You're going to experience like all of these things. Like, let's just be real. You know, we want to talk about these kind of inclusive environments, higher education. And there's amazing spaces, especially like our cultural centers for for um, social justice and understanding at our university are incredible spaces for that. And yet they're some of the least funded spaces in our university. And yet they're asked to do like all of this work. Um, when it comes to graduate students, it's like, you know, they they're like, when a, so when my students come into our small group at this, this Pipeline Inclusive Faculty Program, one of my amazing students who's a, a PhD student, she said, she just literally took a deep breath when she sat down and she said, oh, this is the, oh, one of the only spaces I feel like I don't have to perform anything and I can just be myself. And for the students that I talk to when we have those meetings, they don't have to pretend to know everything. They don't have to pretend to have read, you know, and maybe they have read those and a lot of them have read those like 20 articles that everyone's mentioning, you know, cause you go into these meetings and it's like, oh, you haven't read that. Oh, you don't know who this person is. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like, you know, there's a lot of just kind of pomp and circumstance in higher ed, you know? And, and it's funny, like I even talk about stuff in the classroom and, and, and even our undergrad students are bought into that because I'll be like, Y'all, I don't know, you were the experts. And I had a female student come to me and tell me, oh, professor, you know, you should really talk to these two males in this department. Like, they really know what they're talking about if you don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, no, you don't understand. This was a teaching method. I know what I'm talking about. I'm trying to get you all to, to like, talk a little bit more and use your expertise and, like, use your knowledge. So it's, you know, it's crazy. It's amazing in other, you know, in other parts, the, the, the incredible research that our students are doing and the incredible work that they're doing. And so many of my, you know, my students, especially my students in the pipeline to inclusive faculty program 
are like halftime activists, halftime PhD students, and also parents. Like, mm-hmm. so as undergrads, people are doing this. As graduate students, they're just like doing all of these like incredible things. And it's, I don't know, it's just inspiring to see that. But absolutely, there is this performative space um, in academia. And hey, I do it too. I have to sometimes, right? Like how we're going to a meeting with the chancellor of the university or the provost. Um, is going to look different when we are in community with other people uh, that, you know, we, we can talk to kind of like openly. And so um, it's just there, like it is in business, like it is in other, all everywhere. these places, right, everywhere. But this place is supposed to be the center of just kind of like, you know, understanding. And yes, it's like a, it's a safe space. And it's like, yes, my office is a safe space, but I also acknowledge that the university isn't necessarily a safe space overall. <laughs> so we have to find those pockets in that community in the university to, in order to do the work and, and in order to help our students do the work, I think. You know, you had me smiling when you were talking about your, your teaching method and students saying, well, you know, you really should talk to some other faculty. Um, I am a white woman, um, but also as a faculty um, using a lot of discourse and, and open spaces and exploration in classes. A lot of times the same thing had happened to me as students actually even on reviews would say, she asked us too many questions about our opinions or she wanted feedback on, you know, what would be another method to, to learn this. And it was really fascinating to me because I think we take the autonomy away from students, um, not being able to bring in their lived experience, not being able to bring in their identities, their knowledge. I, I don't believe that we are, you know, empty vessels and we're just supposed to <laughs> put in not right. you know, into their brains. Uh, and, right. you know, that's a form, of, I see that as a form of control, right? right? And if I am as a white woman teaching out of my whiteness, you know, I want things tidy and I want things predictable and I want to be the expert. And that's just not, I, I'm, I often would say to students, I am an expert on nothing but my own lived experience and I'm learning right. alongside you, even though I've maybe studied this longer and I've done more reading of it. And right. Um, I think over time it can be refreshing, but I think there's, I, I know there's also resistance from students who have been so socialized right. by, by these white patriarchal norms of education and academia. And it's like, they don't know what to do. <laughs> yes. You want what I think, wait, you want me to solve this problem? Like, wait, aren't you? Like, mm-hmm. and once they get used to that method, oh my gosh, the growth that can happen, then the imagining that can happen. It's incredible, right? But, but because teaching is a colonial project, if we're doing it within the ways that we're quote unquote supposed to do it, right? I lecture at you. You tell me what, you tell me what I said. You do it on a test. We turn it in. On time. The tests are privileging particular identities, right? White, male, hetero. <laughs> this gender identities always Mm -hmm. and then we score you and then like you go on with your life right um and so it's like remember nothing we need to disrupt that and that's why all of this work that's being done on you know decolonizing our syllabi on decolonizing our classrooms on you know creating these spaces for students to to talk about their lived experience and shared knowledge now i understand that's going to look very different in a biochem class Mm-hmm. than it is in my, you know, Latino studies, intro to Latino studies class. I understand that, right? I think in the humanities and social science, maybe we have a little bit more wiggle room to incorporate those things. 
But I definitely think there's people doing badass work in, you know, in the STEM fields that are that are incorporating that, you know, into their into the work somehow. Um, in re- either if it's the way that they're teaching or the way that they're, you know, testing or, or first, you know, I have to watch my language, but screw testing, man. <laughs> like, like, we know what testing does. Like, and so can we think about other ways to make sure that students are, you know, engaging with the information and these knowledges and truly doing something with it? Because so many students say like, you know, and I tell them when they come into class, and this is when I'm t- talking about the actual teaching. I know it's different in the kind of like advice and mentoring, but um, I'm like, I don't care if you remember any of the articles. I want you to just like take one, like my favorite thing that happens in the class is number one, when the light bulb goes on and they kind of realize like, oh, this is the way the world is working. Like, oh, I've never read anything about people that look like me or like scholars that look like me or scientists that look like me. And all of us, they're just like, oh my gosh, I didn't know this was here because all I've been reading about is like white cisgender people since the time that I was in kindergarten, right? Like other than Cesar Chavez, that might be the only time I saw that. So number one, when that happens. And number two, when they go, oh my God, this article was so good. I shared it with my grandma, with my tia, my aunt, you know, my cousin, they're all reading it. We're like going to talk about it at the family party next weekend. And, and I'm like, yes, like that is what, that is what education is about. It's like taking something, sharing it back with your community and like having a conversation. And, you know, I mean, obviously I'm very like feminist. I'm very, <laughs> you know, the things that I assign are a little different maybe. Uh, but, uh, it's, uh, it's, that's the joy. I think that's a joy of being an educator is where they then go take it back. And then they're doing, they are doing the decolonizing themselves when they are taking this knowledge and they're not holding it within the institution, but they are making, giving like kind of like access the public access to their communities and their families. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like to teach those kind of articles too, that are interesting in that way. And that are like, you know, I got a critique I remember last semester, or not last fall, which when we were in the middle of this whole thing, it was like, okay, well, you really need to be assigning much more academic articles, ah, mm-hmm. you know, and she was a sociologist, you know, a uh, senior student, a lot of the students will come back to those intro classes because they didn't finish them and they need them to graduate, and I get it, but I was like, well, what does that mean? Like, what does that mean for you? Were you uncomfortable when our articles, some of them were op-ed pieces talking about, you know, power, justice, inequality. Uh, I talked about the environmental racism happening like right around the corner in like the little village neighborhood, right? And a lot of the work that's being done there and connecting it to, to things that were happening in LA, things that were happening in New York, et cetera. So you don't always find all the academic articles on the things because those haven't been written because those stories haven't always necessarily been told in the academic context, but the oral histories or the op-ed pieces or the newspaper things or whatever, right? Like there's so many different sources of information. Um, and when they share them with their aunts and their mom, like that's the, <laughs> or uncles or cousins or whatever, I love that. I love that. Or that sometimes they're like little cousins or they're, or they're siblings that are in like high school. And, uh, that, that is my favorite part of, of being an educator is, is those moments. Absolutely. I'm smiling over here. And I was thinking about, 
you know, this idea of assigning more quote unquote academic texts. And so like what my mind goes through, okay, it's got to be quantifiable. It's got to be standardized and peer reviewed, but peer reviewed by who, who was trained by who, no emotion, no feelings, no narrative. And, you know, um, to me, that is a way that we whitewash um, learning in academia. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, who is, who are the faculty? Right. Who are the peer reviewers? Mm-hmm. Right. When we actually look at the numbers, oh, I wish I had them in front of me because I just did a presentation two months ago where I had them in front of me, but it's, you know, we know what they look like. We don't even need to say it. Like we know what that looks like, you know, it may be shifting in terms of gender, but it's definitely very white and very male. Mm-hmm. And that's what, you know, the majority uh, now our university maybe looks a little different and some other universities are, are looking a little bit different, but overall, if we look at all of the tenured faculty, especially tenure, oh God, don't even get me started. Oh. <laughs> I'm sure you have other people talking about that. I'm not one to, you know, I'm not in that track. So I think other people have more valuable information to share with that, but oh my gosh. Talk, yeah. It's all part of this, this colonial project called you know, higher education. Uh, one of my students, I remember another student that's in that same cohort. They're just this brilliant cohort in my pipeline inclusive faculty program. He's a, he's a black male engineer that wants to go back to HBCUs and, and uh, teach there. And, and he told me, and he told the whole group, he's like, look, this is our first day, but we know these institutions weren't built for us. We know that. Mm -hmm. So if you go in operating like that, that's how you need to operate. And I was like, yes, like finger snapping. I was like, this is the first day. I love this. (laughs) um, But we know that to be true. So not to be all negative. I mean, I wouldn't be working in a higher ed if I didn't think there was something, something there or something important there. But uh, we need to acknowledge like what's actually those environments and what they look like. Mm hmm. And who was intended to succeed within them? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. 100%. It, made, it made me think about you earlier had shared um, it for you that your experience going to graduate school is not what you thought it would be. And in that moment, um, I thought about the students over the years, graduate students in particular and undergrad students who have um, shared with me as students of color, experiences of being tokenized, exploited, um, experiencing microaggressions, which I don't think any uh, racial microaggression is micro. I think it's right, it's right exactly. I really believe that. I'm um, in these experiences, and um, and you know, when you said, I think this is, should be the title of the podcast. It's not what I thought it would be. Uh, yeah. What was your What was your pro- like? your process of recognizing, oh, this isn't what I was, I thought it would be. And, um, like your, your survival in it. And now you're continued navigating that and supporting others. And my question being like, does it continue to be not what you thought it would be? Or are you finding like your, your way in it and, and bringing people up, coming back and bringing others up? Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's a big question. Um, let me think. I think all of the things that I experienced continue to exist in these departments, Mm -hmm. right? This kind of tokenizing these, yeah, they're not microaggressions. It's just, let's call it racism. Let's call it what it is. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think they happen in different ways. I think 
that in universities want to have uh, um, more checks and balances or, you know, there, I think there is more resources now, I guess, than when, when I was a graduate student, I feel like there's more people, but if you aren't tapped into those resources at the university as a graduate student, you don't know that they're there. Yeah. And if we look at the data of students that leave, especially graduate students of color that leave the university, it is almost in this kind of stealth silent mode. It's just this dropping out. Mm -hmm. We don't often interview them. Why did you leave? What happened? Um, this is true of some international students as well that are dealing with these same things and they're in oftentimes toxic lab environments, right? Where they're, they're being treated very unjustly sometimes. Um, and so I think it's still there, but I think there is more spaces, I guess, for students to talk about these things, whether it be student organizations or um, spaces like, you know, the graduate college or my office or other places where, where students can talk about that, those things, um, those things exist. Um, and I forgot the second part of your question. Do you mind asking that again so I can respond to that? You need to navigate it. You know, like it, I, my question is, does it continue to be not what you thought it would be as you're, as you're growing within higher education? Or is there like, yep, this is what it is? No, I think it's like, no, it's our responsibility to change it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's our responsibility, even if it's scary to go into a room and say, hey, let's call this out. This is that takes a lot of energy. Yeah. It's, it's scary. It takes a lot of energy. I'm very lucky. I work in a department where my dean is an advocate for um, for diversity, for social justice work, for equity in higher education. If I didn't have that, if I didn't know that that person had my back, it would be much harder for me to call out the chancellor of our university, to call out uh, things on other committees, right? And say, hey, it's too much. But, but I think it's why it's important that we're at the table. Yes, it is what it is. But the more of us that can go into rooms and change the way, you know, even on hiring committees, right? They want to have all these trainings. They want to do all this stuff. But unless you have people in the room that are going to think critically about how that person is going to engage with first-generation students, how they're going to engage with queer students, how they're going to engage on all of these, you know, levels with, with BIPOC students, if we don't have someone in the room who's, like, doing that, then then it's gonna go the way it's always gone. And so though, yes, it is, I, I don't, you know, see this kind of major drastic change. What I hope has happened, especially in this last year with, with these amazing um, uprisings for justice and understanding, um, you know, what is going on, I think, I think maybe there's at least a moment of pause and questioning mm -hmm. of how our universities are operating. What does the faculty look like? Who is doing the labor at the university? Who is doing a lot of the labor, right? And academia and at the university. And that's a lot of BIPOC women of color, right? Mm -hmm. That we know is kind of doing this labor. And so even if it's this moment of kind of like questioning and thinking about, um, you know, those things, I think it could lead to a shift or just like being in the room and being able to call things out. And so, yes, it's, it is how it's always been, but it's also having the tools. Like I just... I fantasize about going back and, and calling out all the stuff that I heard from professors when I was yeah. 22 years old. Mm -hmm. I fantasize about going back and calling out to my, you know, why my, my white graduate college peers who said, well, you got here on a diversity scholarship, oh. right? Oh. You know, in a room in an office and, and feeling so like, oh God, I don't know what to do with that. Mm -hmm. um, of calling out a professor who in our first meeting said, 
oh, you got the PhD thing, but you know what? You should really think about a master's. Um, you know, what I would say to those people, and it's like telling my undergraduates, telling my graduate students, this is reality. This is what's going to happen. So let's work on the tools that you can use when those situations happen and sharing my, and sharing our stories, right? This is why you're doing this podcast. Like, like how important our lived experience and our stories are. So that doesn't happen to my, you know, 200 undergrads that I'm, I'm going to be lucky to, to work with like this, you know, this fall or the thousands of graduate students, even though only a couple hundred I actually get to engage with <laughs> when I'm talking to them, um, you know, in our in offices, talking about their careers, trajectories, because it's not just going to happen in university. We even know that the university is sometimes an even safer space than those work environments that they're going to be in, right? And so it's just like preparing and sadly it's, it's, yes, we want to change the university, but more so we want to give our students the skills to and know how to kind of navigate the situations and to call on the right resources and the right people and advocate for themselves because nobody else is going to do that. I wish I knew that. I wish I knew that when I was 22, that no one was going to come to my rescue. I didn't have the professors that I had before. Um, you know, I had mentors, but I needed 20 mentors. I didn't just need one. Yeah. And I think it's like teaching our students how to kind of leverage that and seeing. And when you see when they do that and how successful and wonderful, you know, one of my old students I've worked with a long time, he just graduated from law school. I'm seeing, you know, students I've worked with in the past, they finished their PhDs and they're on to either faculty positions or doing other kind of work that they really love and enjoy. And and, and so much of that work is radical and transformative, you know, and it's just, it's beautiful to see, but they had those skills and they knew how to navigate those spaces. And I think, yes, I wish 22 year old Teresa knew those things, but it's so much more important that I can share that in order for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students to do that themselves, because that's, that's how the work is done. And that's, what's important. 100%. Sorry, I get very like yeah. in talk. Um, I, I was, I have again so many thoughts, but you know, you were talking about speaking up, and so me living in white skin, I was thinking about the emotional labor uh, of you and other, let's say, women of color having to do that, and it made me think that's also the reason why we need representation. One hundred percent, we need to have more yeah. inclusive. Uh, authentic belonging spaces, but we also need more white identifying people in spaces to speak the truth and not expect those who are most marginalized within our systems, within society to do all this work. Yes. Heck yes. We'll just get that heck yes with cowboys, cowbells and other bells on. <laughs> we need that. We don't need folks speaking for people, but we do need folks speaking up and say, hey, there's something up with this. This isn't right. Maybe I'm not the right person to lead this, mm -hmm. but we need to question this and like, what's going on? We need people, because here's the problem. They can just check out, go do their research, get tenure, move on, and they never have to think about those things, right? Their day can go on, our day can go on. Right, and, why, and, and a lot of that mentoring labor, especially, especially when we think about faculty, we think about administrators, like who is getting the extra labor of mentoring students. Oh, well, you know, we don't have that many faculty, but this person's like, great, let's put them on this 100 committees or let's put them, you know, let's give them 20 more students because like, that's all we have. Like, <laughs> like no, <laughs> 
Yes, absolutely. I think there's, there's also, I think, amazing, you know, white folks at our university doing the work and doing that and speaking up and, and, and playing a part, but also, you know, um, I don't know. Yeah. I agree with you. It needs to happen. It needs to happen. So that kind of leads me into my next question is what are some of the reasons that you find it important that we collectively uh, interrupt whiteness in the academy in particular? Why is it important that we collectively interrupt whiteness? We need to interrupt whiteness because the stories of our students, their journeys and their experiences are not being told. They're not being valued. Um, and they're being tokenized. Yes. They're just being, they, I mean, it's just, oh, look at all this amazing stuff we do. Look at the five students that we have when you have like 200 students. Well, let's actually look at your numbers. <laughs> like, <laughs> you want to show us a pie chart, like right of your numbers? Um, I think it also contributes to, um, there's this amazing op-ed piece actually that just got written by Susanna Ortega, who's the president of the Council of Graduate Schools. And she talked about how if we start to bring more uh, BIPOC students into the fold, into graduate school and have them have successful careers, a lot of the ideas and problem solving and, and, and issues that are happening from, you know, social science stuff to STEM to the economy, if we have all of these voices, then there's more like, it's more likely that these problems can be solved, that our, their economy, well, the economy and our capital system is problematic, but let's, let's just say like, right, um, that these things, it are really important in, in kind of cultivating like teams that work and problem solving that works and science that works. Mm -hmm. It needs to involve uh, BIPOC folks. And so we need to interrupt this whiteness because, I mean, if we look at our society right now, <laughs> like, especially in the United States, right? It was, it's a, it's a colonial state that was, it's founded in, um, you know, wasp culture, whiteness, um, and, and this kind of colonial project. And so it's not working. No. We don't want to acknowledge the history of how, you know, it's founded on genocide, on slavery, mm -hmm. on, um, you know, taking over half the country and then now calling people like, <laughs> like aliens that were indigenous to this land in the first place. Like, like you, you have a really skewed sense of history, man, if you think that, you know, it is the way it is, especially as right now, even on this weekend, we're approaching this kind of 4th of July, right? Which is like, oh man, like, oh, the conversations of the, of the, the flag waving and the, like the hyper patriotism with people who don't even understand. <laughs> like the, the history and how um, and then the olympic trial stuff that's happening right now and oh my gosh it's just but i think it's essential because it's gonna make our society hopefully like a better place it's gonna make our our you know social problems something that that folks can kind of work on it, it's gonna make our science better it's gonna make our math better it's gonna make our teaching better it's gonna make it just makes things better when you have these voices and and i don't know like i'm not one to say oh we're gonna change it like internally i think we need a, a real disruption and that disruption is kind of 
it's going to be really changing this institution of higher education and people who hold power aren't really necessarily going to want to do that. And mm -hmm. so it's going to be, it's listening to our, our activists, our organizers, our people from the ground. If we look at, if we look at our, okay, and I'm a historian, sorry, I know it was, no, let's do it. <laughs> you know, but if we look at, if we look at, a lot of people go, oh, well, you know, the civil rights movement and this is that. And that's like, yeah, we had these kind of male leaders. But if you actually looked at who was doing the work, it was a lot of these, you know, women of color doing this grassroots organizing that got those things to happen. Mm -hmm. And that is true, especially even in this like last year. And I see like the work that's happening in our communities. Right. Um, and so I think we need to listen. We need to listen a little bit more to our community experts, our community organizers. Um, and here's another example. Sorry, I don't <laughs> but you know, I I uh, I have a colleague, a friend who's a community activist, and and some uh, uh, public health folks came into their organization and said, "Oh, well, we're here to help you and fix things and change things in your community." Oh yeah, right. right. Like mostly right. like white, <laughs> young, 23, 24, 25. I don't know how old they were. Oh, she didn't go over what that was, and she was like, "Wait, excuse mm -hmm. me." Like, I've been working in this community for like 20 years. So, so what are those folks saying? Because they are the ones that are talking to the people that have these kind of like solutions, right? Mm -hmm. um, what are the folks who are working on the ground who are like adjunct instructors at our universities? Maybe we should listen to them more. They're the ones that are actually teaching the courses, right? Yes. What about the people who are listening to what's going, who are the people at the front, like front office workers, right? <laughs> who are civil servants of the universities that see like what's happening with our students. They're talking to them. They're doing this on the day to day. So I think it's just like, we need to do a little bit more listening from the ground as opposed to these kind of very top down, hierarchical colonial models grounded in whiteness about how our universities should operate because we'll see like a major shift and I think it will be a better place for research. It'll be a better place for learning. Um, and yeah, I know I'm living in a utopia brain, but no, we need to, something needs to change. <laughs> we need to reimagine. And I think that I am loving this and thinking about for things to change, right? We have to have, individuals that are willing to reimagine and like you said before that reimagining has to come from the people um, living in their identities and their communities not from outsiders and so not from historically and present day and higher ed yeah from white people white men in particular with a lot of power and not and not from peer-reviewed articles that <laughs> An evidence-based right, peer review yeah. articles. Yes. Okay. Um, Honey, I told us, like, you're going to have plenty of classes where they give you all the peer-reviewed articles. This is one class. Yes, we do those, but we do things a little differently. When you're teaching, you can go do that. But I, I want to teach in a different way. <laughs> and it's important to not only think, but also to feel, to reflect, to commune, right? To collaborate. Right. I mean, where do we have, you know, my sister and I were talking about this. She's a, she's a ethnic studies professor at Laney Community College in Oakland. And, you know, I was lucky to spend some time with her this summer. And we we're just talking about like, where, where's these conversations? We, we like to talk about mental health. Mm -hmm. We like to like invoke our counseling centers to do all this work. But like, we also need to do that work too. When you were talking about like folks stepping up and speaking up, like, we also need to think about like mental health, like in our classrooms and our committees and 
And especially with the overburdening of labor that's happening for BIPOC folks right now, right? Uh, where is this kind of like understanding this mental health? Even I know before we started, we were chatting a little bit about this. Like, like we really need to engage that, not just bringing in someone to do a talk or, oh, here's the data and look at these rates of, you know, sadly, like the, the huge increase in rates of, of depression, of anxiety for graduate students during the pandemic was, was it's just insane, right? When we look at that, but just overall is like higher ed practitioners or community practitioners, like how are we allowing spaces for folks to deal with their own mental health? Um, I brought up in a meeting, I think two weeks ago, oh, well, how are we going to help our students? I said, okay, we have been going at it hard for like almost two years straight without breaks now, right? Like how are we taking care of ourselves so that we can continue, right, to do this work? And so I think like thinking about wellness um, is really important too um, in order to keep doing that, to keep doing that labor, keep doing that work. Um, but we just want to, you know, let's, let's take care of it for students or like, let's do a talk at the university or, okay, yeah, these are the things and you need to refer people, but it's like, it's not that simple. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes just allowing folks to take a day to have a breath, yeah. uh, do what they need to do to take care of themselves are going to make them better teachers, administrators, um, colleagues, you know, et cetera. So I know that it sounds simple, but it's just, I think it's so important. It is simple. Uh, you know, the last two years, um, and I was, t- my, some of my completely virtual classes, it's not the case, but we meditated at the beginning and sometimes the beginning of, and the end of every class. Mm-hmm. And a colleague of mine asked me if it was appropriate. And <laughs> And um, I said, you know, if students can't come (laughs) and take a breath and feel and connect with their soul and um, have a moment, like do a journal reflection on the stress they're experiencing, like Mm. if we know anything about the brain, (laughs) if we know anything, but that's not how the brain works. That's not, we, we, and the soul, it's just like the souls of students and people is to me, more important than their intellectual capacity, mm-hmm. what they memorize. Yes. yes. And, you know, um, I think in many ways, I'm like, oh, that, this is, <laughs> this, to me, it's like natural, but I'm like, oh, this is a form of resistance in the yeah. academy. Yeah. That I'm Just not doing a meditation or a five minute breath yes. is a form of resistance in the academy. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I do. Well, in-person classes are different than online, but like, and it depends on how big your class is. Right. But I do that sometimes. I don't know. I think I just call it like, just, we do breathing exercises. We do reflections. We do kind of like envisioning. Mm -hmm. Um, And also just like check-ins. Yeah. Doing check-ins in classes, like students are like, wait, what? You actually want to know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you care like that I'm a human, like that, <laughs> that I have stuff going on. And, and it's like, wow, you know, and sometimes it's just one word, but the fact that you can create those spaces for students to feel, and of course in my smaller groups and all my grad groups, we do, we tend to do these check-ins because you have a smaller group of students, but um you know, and there's amazing things. And sometimes people need that space. Sometimes someone does go off for 10 minutes in a meeting, but they needed that. That was the only place that actually asked them how they were doing and what was going on. Mm-hmm. Like how many people genuinely ask us how we're doing? And we, I know we were talking about this earlier too. We say, oh, well, yeah, I'm fine. Good. 
But what's the, what, how are you really, right? (laughs) And the the how are you really is sometimes what students need, Mm -hmm. whether that's journaling or like checking in or even just saying a word or having that space after class to talk to somebody or after a meeting to talk to someone and, and be connected to whatever they need for their support. Um, Truly caring, you know, and there's, I think there's a lot of us that it's like, we're lucky there is a lot of us that do truly care about like our students, but there's a lot of people that just are there for their own. (laughs) (laughs) Accolades and peer review and research and whatever. And that's great. We need that too. We need them to, to get the grant dollars for the university, but you know, absolutely. It's a balance. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, you are a gift um, and a gift to students too. Are you cool if we end um, with some quick questions without any interruptions? Yeah, sure. That sounds good. Yeah, I think this one's so fast. I'm like, oh my gosh, we didn't even get to everything, but it was, it's fun. <laughs> it's been awesome. Uh, what keeps you up at night, Teresa? What keeps me up at night? Um, inequality in our healthcare system. I've lost family members because of that. And we've seen people die in COVID, environmental racism, um, just racism, homophobia, um, you know, how we treat our trans brothers and sisters. Um, just knowing that there's kids that are still going to bed hungry. Um, our students, sorry, I'm like about to cry, but like our students that have been through so much, you know, this past year, they've lost family members, you know, people have lost jobs in their families. Sometimes they're, you know, they have to go, people that are parents and, you know, they've had to move in with like their families and just people are struggling. Like it's, it's just knowing that other people, and this is just like the people around me, but I feel like I don't know. There's just so much. Um, I mean, our us like the fact that we cage children that that you know are undocumented brothers and sisters. The fight and struggle that they're going through, and it's just so silenced. Um, and our students that they have to live in fear every day that it, you know th- their parents are going to get deported. They're going to get deported. Uh, and it's just BS. Like, why do we have these borders anyways, you know? And so there's just, there's a lot, but I, I, I try to just go to sleep and wake up the next day and keep going, uh, and keep working and keep supporting the people that I need to support and do the work that I need to do. Ooh, yeah, that was a lot. <laughs> I want to follow up, but no, it's okay. what brings you joy? Mm. Oh, nature brings me joy. Um, I was learning a lot about plant medicine in the in the pandemic and just just being present with our plants, our animals, the ocean, trees, uh, really calling on my ancestors for support and love and um, traveling, having the privilege to travel when I can, but also share those stories and knowledges and experiences. Um, to share that travel is accessible, you know, there are ways to do it and being a, a, you know, solo woman traveler is also something that can be done. Um, my family, oh my God, dogs, dogs, and just aesthetic beauty. And that sounds so superficial, but I mean, just more like just taking in moments to breathe in that sunset and, uh, or just like you see a beautiful thing happening between, you know, parents and a child or, 
or a joy that a, a, a colleague or a friend or a family member is celebrating and just being joyful, like really taking those little moments and just really celebrating them because that's what we have and we really need to, to live in that joy. So yeah, so many things, but those are a few things. Amazing. So on your last day of your earthly life, and, <laughs> and you meet your maker of the universe, if you believe uh, there is, uh, what are you toiling for her or them to say to you? What do I want them to say to me? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, ooh, that's, a, that's, ooh, that's intense. <sighs> I want them to say that the work was good. The people that you knew, the people that you love knew you, that you love them and that the work will continue. Um, and it's, it's going to be okay. Uh, it sounds simple, but mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. It's good that, that, that there is a plan and that, you know, the folks, you know, are going to be, the folks are going to be okay. Um, not to mention like, oh, that, that family member, this family member, and like, you know, but, oh, I don't need, I don't have an answer to that. That's just a intense question. Uh, but yeah, that, that you did something, you did something good and it's going to be all right. And that work's going to continue. You know, I think that's, that's what's important to me. Mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you um, that your work is so good friend and that I know it's going to continue because students, former students had shared with me the ways that you have impacted them. So it's going uh, to for sure. Thank you so much. Um, and I can't wait until we connect again. And thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was beautiful and so reflective for me too. And now I'm like, Oh, I need to go journal for 20 minutes. <laughs> thank you so much for this space and for this podcast and um i just appreciate um those questions and just your knowledge and your experience and all the things that you bring to the table um so so thank you so much for having me it's my honor and these are also my responsibilities so thank Mm -hmm. you Dear brave souls, Teresa Christensen Caballero shared with us her joy for teaching, the nuance of her identity and experiences, as well as her deep love of history. Teresa also unpacked her embodied work of decolonizing academia. Might we all think of the ways that we can decolonize ourselves, especially for those of us who work in the academy, to think of the ways that we share whitewashed narratives, methodologies, and practices in the academy. The ways that we show up for our students, all of our students. And might we move in ways that heal 
that allow the students we have the honor to teach to show up in all of their humanity, in all of their identities, and co-create spaces like those that Teresa shared. This is to teach. I hope we have learned much from listening to Teresa's passion and wisdom. So let's take a deep breath in and exhale through our mouth. Might we collectively, no matter if we've never been formally educated or we have journeyed through the plight of earning a PhD. Might we unlearn, continue to learn, and honor the history, the knowledge, and the humanity of all peoples. Take a deep breath in and exhale through your mouth and continue the journey. No matter where you find yourself, working in higher education, in corporate America, in nonprofit work, or the work you commit to your family, to your home and to your communities. Until next time, continue to be brave and unlearn.